Well, take your scriptures out um, and turn to Acts 12. We're continuing on in our series in Acts. And we have a very interesting passage to look at today. Part of what we're looking at in a certain way or in a certain sense challenges us in a very deep way. And I'm not sure that the way that I see it is exactly the way you see it. So we're going to discover a little bit here as we move through this passage. You may uh, read this as we kind of look at it, as we uh, focus on it. It's verses 20 through 25 of chapter 12. And you may arrive at a completely different approach or understanding. That's okay. Where I feel God's asking us to go here is to, to see what God is doing. To see how God worked with the early church. And how does that, in fact, inform us? How does that equip us? How does that teach us? Not just as the church, primarily as the church, but also in our homes, in our work, in our struggles, in our joys. How does the Word of God inform us so it becomes living and exciting? So this morning, let me read the passage today. Again, Acts 12. And we have come off a very interesting section where we just saw Peter escape. It's the number one most wanted in all of Jerusalem. Uh, the greatest prison break ever recorded in time and uh, all supernatural, and that the body of believers were gathered praying. And they get to the other side of this. Peter shows up at the door, the very thing they're praying for, and they're shocked. They're amazed. Wait, Rhoda, you can't be right. There's no way that happened. But we're, we're praying for it, right? And so what we learned last week, in context of what God has given us, is that God can work powerfully and mightily and in that sense where even those that walked with Jesus Christ were amazed at what God could do and God's plan. And so this morning, we're picking it up about a year later in the story. And we're dealing with a very interesting character. He is a, a, a Roman ruler. He's one of the Herods, Herod Agrippa. And he's got his feet in both camps. He comes from a lineage that's Jewish, and so he really tries to observe all of these Jewish uh, uh, practices and holidays. And part of that is a political maneuver on his part so that he can keep the peace and earn the respect of the people. And it's interesting how this doesn't work together real well for him. Uh, do a study on Herod later on. We, we did a little bit of an approach on him historically last week. But let's look at the passage this morning. Verse 20, and this is where we pick it up. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. 
Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Just one of those great passages for like edification and positive thinking, right? Well, you have to preach the whole word of God. And speaking of which, continue on verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now, are we in Jerusalem? No, we're in Caesarea. And I've shown you some pictures in the past that uh, right there in Caesarea, they found this beautiful theater. Um, it's, it's got this beautiful look out onto the Mediterranean, and uh, it is known that that is where he would have gathered. Remember that he gathered all the people together for a, an oration. And so he's going to address the people from the land. It's not just the people from Caesarea. The people from Tyre and Sidon were there as well. Now, those were independent uh, countries. They weren't necessarily under Roman rule, and so they felt justified in going after criticizing Herod, but they had a little problem. There was a famine in the land. We read about that last week, and they were dependent on Rome for food. And so now they find themselves estranged from Herod because they were kind of backstabbing him over here, and now they don't have any food. So what do they do? Well, they play politics like any of us would, right? Go find a spokesperson, and it's commonly understood that he, he would have been bribed by these people of Tyre and Sidon. And so they bribed Blastus, who was on the in, inside, maybe like a cabinet position, right? They bribed Blastus to get a word in. And something must have worked because those people were invited this day for this oration. Now, you're dependent on this evil dictator person. You've been criticizing and you realize you're in a hole. Understand the motivation of what happens here. So, Herod puts on his robes, and, and history tells us, Josephus tells us that this robe that he was wearing was like sequins. It was silver, and it was heavy, and it would have been uh, little silver uh, um, half moons that were hanging all over what he was doing. So as he stood out there in the, in the incredible sunlight, and he had tens of thousands in front of him in this elevated arched uh, theater, the sun would have been bearing down on him and he would have even been difficult to look at because he would have been shining so brilliantly. So are you getting a picture of what's going on here? So you see an opportunity because you need this man in your corner. So what do more than likely, not for sure, but more than likely, what do the citizens, or the representation, the ambassador, the emissaries from Tyre and Sidon start doing? Pandering, just like our Congress. Right? Pandering, just the guy we need is standing up there talking. Let's call him a god. Yes, yeah, you do it. You, you say it. So somebody, and, and everybody jumped in and, and they were clapping. And what does the story say? That because Herod did not refute it, an angel of the Lord struck him down immediately. Now what's interesting is that's what Scripture says. If you go to antiquity, there's two sources in antiquity that you can read on that talk about this. One out of the, uh, the Jewish um, uh, Mishnah uh, and, and some of the later writings because they were there and they would have recorded it as well. 
but also uh, Josephus records this. And it says, that he imme- it says that he was struck in the middle of the speech. Okay, these are the other stories. Struck sick in the middle of the speech. It says that he saw an owl fly overhead. And that when he was initially um, blessed by Claudius, that there was an owl that was present in the courtyard. And he took it as a good omen, but someone had predicted and prophesied that when that happens again, it will be your demise. And he sees this owl at the same time being struck with this incredible pain in his stomach. And history says that he went on for three days to suffer. And that his intestines and his insides were festering and ulcerating. And he died after three days of a painful suffering death. And during those three days, it is notated in history that he regretted. And he talked to different leaders saying, why did you call me a God? Why He knew what had happened. He said, why did you call me a God? And yet, God in that moment, there was an immediacy to God's hand of justice. And this is what we face today. There's a little bit of a challenge here. We like to think of God as, as I don't know, I've heard this described multiple ways. Uh, uh, maybe He's the, um, you know, the giant app developer in the sky. It used to be the giant gumball machine in the sky, right? You just threw up a prayer, dropped a quarter in, and you got your wish. And, and that's kind of how we saw God. There's so much complexity to the character of God. And so as we look at this this morning, we have, to, we have to ask some very serious questions. Let me ask this to begin with. Have, have you ever, I'm sure you haven't, have you known a person that has ever formed an opinion of someone because of circumstances? Think about that for a second. Have you, I'll make it personal, have I ever formed an opinion of someone because of circumstances? Because things didn't go well. Maybe uh, your spouse, right? And you think back to when you first met and it didn't go well. And it's kind of a miracle that you're together, right? Because you didn't put all of your opinion into that first date, right? The challenge to forming an opinion based off of circumstances is a little bit of what we wrestle with today because this is the world we live in. And and so why would I ask that question? Because obviously if we look at this text this morning, my question to you is this, is God a loving God? Yes or no? Non-rhetorical. Then can you please explain to me why he would destroy every man and woman on earth save for six at the flood because that's what i hear from people all around us and their opinion of god you talk about a loving god have you read the old testament now we have this challenge herod's standing there And God exacts immediate justice and strikes him dead. Who does this remind us of? 
real quickly that's happened in Acts as well. Ananias and Sapphira. Now, Ananias and Sapphira lie to God. Does God strike dead immediately all those who have lied to God? No. We have a, we have a problem here. How do we figure this out? Because really what we're looking at today is the character of God. Is your opinion of who God truly is, is it based off of opinion of others and circumstances that individuals go through that are hideous, that are, that are difficult, that are challenging? Is your opinion based in circumstances about your God? My challenge to us this morning is sometimes when we do that, maybe we're not seeing the whole picture of who God is. Now the reality of where we have to start is, yes, God struck Herod dead. Do you remember last week's message where Herod struck somebody else dead? Does anybody remember who was cut down, literally cut down? One of the apostles, James. So would not our question, this was a year prior, would not our question be, <laughs> when, when Herod gets struck down in this theater, wouldn't our question be, God, you already knew you were going to strike him dead. Why didn't you strike him dead before he struck James dead? That's something we would think, isn't it? I'm sure it's something that the early church would have thought. So here's our problem. Here's our dilemma. How do we figure out God? You've got, you've got him staying his hand. If, if Herod deserves death, you've got him staying his hand in order that James might be martyred. That one hurts. Maybe we start forming an opinion about God because of those circumstances. But we fail to see the totality of who God is. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. So what does it mean to say God is just? Uh, there's a great quote here, a little uh, quote that Toby Mac put out. It is impossible to rightly govern a nation without God and the Bible. Uh, our first president said that. That's a good quote. And there's our passage this morning. So as we continue on, the question is, what does it mean to say God is just? If, if the title of our message today is, A Just or Just Mean God, let's wrestle with this idea. And you have sermon notes, if you want to take them out, we're doing a little fill in the blank. Number one, it's the idea that He uplifts the righteous. He uplifts the righteous. That God is just because those that are righteous, He uplifts. Now, my instant cynical mind would go to the idea of, well, wait, James was righteous and he wasn't uplifted. I think if I take a larger view of God's plan, that when I get into heaven and I see James and I ask James, were you uplifted? I sincerely doubt that he will say no based off of his end-of-life circumstances. You see, the early church saw martyrdom as an honor. We see it as massive suffering. 
and character assassination on God the Father. But He uplifts the righteous. How many did He protect in the midst of Herod's horrible reign? How have we seen Him uplift David? How have we seen Him uplift the other apostles who it was already prophesied that they, Jesus told them, you will all suffer a death for Me. So, He uplifts the righteous. The idea is He exalts. He lifts them up. He brings them close to Him. He is pleased with the righteous. He rewards the righteous. Secondly, He casts down the wicked. Now part of me wants to look at this and say, well, if He uplifts the righteous, it certainly seems that He's uplifting Herod by not striking him down when he struck James. But see, God in His total character and in His justice, and we'll get to an example of this in a minute, in His total character, God is merciful. God exhibits grace. God exhibits patience. If we were to go to Galatians 5.22 and see the list of the fruits of the Spirit, those are a perfect magnification of His transferable attributes just part of his attributes and so when we take God we have to take God in his his totality but God is just and so in his time in his wisdom in his purpose he will bring down the wicked which is what we see in the scripture how many of you have prayed like David have prayed that there has been an enemy there has been someone that has caused you such great challenge, hurt, and you have been so tempted to pray like David to grind their bones into dust. Right? You know, there is an essence of that that's within us that speaks to justice. To justice. But see, God has this perfect temperament that can get a little confusing for you and I because we want to see God according to how we see everyone else. God cannot be evaluated like we evaluate each other. I have such an overinflated sense of justice that I actually am wearing a cape right now. It's underneath my shirt. It has a big J on it for Jer and justice. And when I see injustice happen, there are times where I exercise patience, I exercise grace, I exercise mercy, and then if all of those run out, you don't want to see justice jar because it gets a little ugly. But there's really a depth inside of me that, that resonates with this. That the wicked are not going to get away with this. And so that screams out to us, right? Psalm 40 and Isaiah 42 and, and other passages that say, how long? And we'll see this in Revelation. Revelation 6. How long, God, before You exact Your hand of justice? When is this going to happen? God, You, by Your character, would have known that what was happening in Vegas was going to happen. Why did You not do anything 
to stop that. And yet on the tail end, we hear about a, another plot that was going to happen all over the United States that had been found out over a year ago. I don't have an easy answer for you in looking at how God exacts His justice, but I do know what it means to say that God is just. When we say that God is just, it means that He uplifts the righteous, He casts down the wicked, and that when questioned, here is the biggest point, when questioned, God will always be found trustworthy. That if we let it play out, in, in our finite minds, questioning the infinite God, the perfect holy God, that when we start to come underneath that understanding of who He is, not opinion based off circumstances, but truly who He is and His character, then we start to understand how this justice that He exacts works and that He truly is a just God. God is defined as just. Isaiah 42, 1-4, that's for reference. Let's turn to Romans, though, 3. And as we look at that, this idea that God is defined as just, it's His character and will to be the example of righteousness and to act in righteousness. We cannot talk about justice without infusing this idea of God's righteousness. It is what, it's part of what makes Him just. All of His decisions are just because He is the quintessence of righteousness. And some of these verses will be very familiar to you. Some, we stopped before we finished out the, the, the whole thought here in the paragraph, and we'll look at that um, in, this, in this moment. Starting verse 21, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in, <clears throat> in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put, God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. See, His righteousness requires patience his righteousness righteousness requires mercy it requires grace but his justice being a perfect god being exactly who he is also requires at the right time according to him not according to us requires action against those who are wicked in the meantime make no illusion Scripture is filled with those who love God, who serve God, who are suffering in a broken world. That's the next question, isn't it? Well, if God is all these things, why doesn't He not make it just just all around us? Folks, that will happen at the end of days. When Christ comes back, justice will happen in its finality. In this moment, God is working in, through, and around in a broken, sinful system. And we'll get to that in just a minute. God is questioned in heaven about justice. Revelation 6. Let's turn there as well. Uh, one, of the, one of my favorite passages in the book of Revelation. Probably one of the only ones I can understand. 
Revelation 6. We're going to be in verses 7 through 11. One of the beautiful moments where we get to look into the throne room and see how God is interacting, His decision process. And now we get to see some response by the saints who have already perished, already perished under the hand of the wicked. When He opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over the fourth of the earth to kill the sword with the sword and with the famine. Am I reading the right stuff? Six, seven through eleven. Oh yeah, sorry. I wanted to give some context here. Um, so then you've got you know famine and pestilence and killed by wild beasts of the earth. That's not a pretty picture. And this is justice. This is justice. Continue on verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. These are the individuals that have been slain. This is currently happening. That's why so many people would look, and, and there's some scholars and there's some pastors that say we are definitely in the end times. We might even be in the tribulation right now based off of all of the uh, hideous uh, martyrdoms that are happening in the Middle East and in Africa for the name of Christ. Yes. But sometimes we lose track of our history. This has been happening since the dawn of salvation. That those who stand for Christ instantly become enemies of the world. But it is these souls that speak. It is our brothers and sisters who have stood faithfully for the name of Jesus Christ. They are the righteous. They have been uplifted and listened to their cry to a just God. They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before You will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. God has a plan in the midst of all of this and there's so much of the componentry of God's economy and the end times and how the world is unfurling all around us that it speaks to all of the character of God. His wisdom, His interaction with men, His redemption of the, of the saints in the midst of a violent and hostile world towards God. And He's got to see that work itself out. Even to the point where the souls who are there say, how long are you going to wait before you exact your justice? And He says, just a while longer. There's still more going on that has to be complete. Fascinating understanding when we say God is questioned in heaven about justice. It's okay to have those challenges in our life. It's not okay to diminish the character of who God is based off of circumstances that we only look at with a scintilla of understanding. Let's see God for who He is in His completeness. And when we do that, 
we'll still struggle. Why do I say that? These souls are in heaven. They're conversing with God Himself. And yet they're still saying, what is the plan? Are you really going to follow through? And what does God say? Yeah, I'm going to follow through. But there's more that has to happen. Just how you're here now, there's more that has to happen. And that all fits with His mercy and His grace and His loving kindness. But as well, His justice. His justice. Sometimes I ask these questions when we get into the challenges of life. You know, God chooses when He will exact His justice. He chooses when He's going to exact His justice. Some of you know this story that years ago, back when I was a hoodlum, wanted in ten counties for illegal fishing. (laughs) You know, there's the letter of the law, and then there's just those times that sneak up on you. And uh, go figure, it would be right in front of the men of the church. Oh, it was a beautiful moment. And uh, we're at men's retreat. First year we go and do men's retreat. And I go out to go fishing real quick, just real quick to see, you know, how's the bike doing? And I'll let other guys know that are interested. And so I grab my rod. And that was the year where you don't have to have your license on you. It just has to be in your vicinity. And I had my license. I got the night before on our, on our trip there at Bass Pro. And it was in the bag with all my, my uh, lures and stuff that was in the back of the, the car. And so I'm casting out. And here comes... You know the ranger? I've, I've, been, I've been fishing for 35 years. I've never seen a game warden in my life. And so I see this person. I'm like, hey, how you doing? And I'm like breathing easy because I'm like, ah, oh, you're not going to get me. I'm good. And uh, so the next thing, you know, here comes the question. Yeah, you got you. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wind up and go. Now all of a sudden, here comes Scott and Bruce and Gary and all these guys walking up just to witness this beautiful moment of your pastor's thug life. And uh, so I'm looking, and I'm looking, and I'm looking, and I cannot find this bright orange bag, and I'm trying to figure out where is my, and it's not there. And I'm thinking, I left that in there last night. What? So I got a ticket. Now, let me just tell you, when you get a ticket for fishing or anything, you have to go back to that county and appear in that county. That's another three and a half hour drive just to appear to pay for this ticket. So I drive all the way to Fresno a few months later, and, and uh, I show up and uh, uh, go to the window, and I'm like, yeah, I just want to pay the ticket. I don't have time to do She goes, well, you, missed, you have to appear, and you missed your window. I'm like, what do you mean I missed my window? She said, you had to be here at such and such a time. I said, how was I supposed to know that? Well, you just were. <laughs> and I'm thinking, there is no thank you. <laughs> Feels like the people's court right now. There's no justice. And so <laughs> I'm like, so what do I do? She goes, you have to come back another day. I'm like, I just drove from the Bay Area to pay for a fishing ticket that I had my license for. Do you understand? Sir, I just work here. I just operate the window. I don't make the decisions. So I had to go back on Christmas vacation. Now I had to get a hotel room overnight just to make sure i wouldn't run into traffic by the way there's a there's an apb out on me at this point i kid you not there's a warrant yeah my former my former life group teased me relentlessly about being a fugitive there's a warrant out for me for illegal fishing yeah 
where's the justice? So I go to the finer courts of Fresno. I get in there. I'm walking the streets of Fresno at 4.30 in the morning to be first in line. I kid you not, it was like 28 degrees. I'm standing outside this, the courthouse building for two hours waiting to be first in line. I go through all of this, and I get in the court, and they call me up, and I get up there, and I stand in, and uh, he says, this is a fishing violation? I said, yes, sir. And he says, did you have a license? I said, yeah, and I have a copy of it right here. And uh, so he asked for a copy. He says, what are you doing here? And I said, looking for justice. <laughs> and he says, dismissed. I said, hallelujah, for the first time ever, I will say, I love Fresno. <laughs> and that's the last time I've said that. But, you know, sometimes you look and you say, when, when is justice going to happen? When is justice going to happen? And often we look at God in that way, and you have things in your own life, and you're saying, God, when is it going to be just? I'm not the wicked. I, I'm the righteous. I'm trying to be righteous, and yet I'm, I'm suffering. Do not equate God's justice with suffering, right? That's not how we equate God's justice. When God starts to do things that are counter to His righteousness, that's when we can question His justice. But you better make sure that what you see is not an opinion, that it truly is an abrogation of how he has described who he is, his self-evident righteousness and justice. God wins. That's the final point today. In the end, justice wins. And the world holds fast. Verse 24, turn back to Acts. And what I want you to walk away with this morning truly is this sense that because sometimes we don't see justice around us, and I have eloquently danced around the obvious things that we hear in the news all the time. We know those things. I want to talk about the things we struggle with personally. God, I, I've been faithful to serve you, and yet this person over here who's wicked is thriving. How do we look at a just God when we look at Job? How do we do that? And I know what many of you are saying. You're, you're doing exactly what I would do, sitting where you're... Well, you've got to read the end of the story, Pastor Jeremy, where everything was reestablished for him to a greater level than what he initially had. I hear that. What I still struggle with is he still lost all of his children. How does Job deal with a just God? So I'm going to give you homework. What? There's a pastor that gives homework? That's a surefire way to get you to go to another church. Here's your homework. Read through the last six chapters of Job. You want to start to understand God and His justice and God and His character and all that's going at. And in light of getting that first-person understanding, not opinion, but biblical understanding of how God describes Himself, that we take that and learn who God is and interact with God on that level rather than our circumstances defining who God is. 
You see, this is the triumphant ending to the book of Job. Somehow, through God's grace, Job never defined God because of his circumstances. And why? Because he interacted with God. He sought God out. God sought him out. And he experienced God. And in the midst of all that discourse, and maybe even some more that wasn't written down, there's a beauty of understanding that in the end, Job understood he served a just God. That God wins. Let's look at verse 24 and see what this says. Maybe you remember it. So you have this gruesome picture that Herod dies and, and what we have here is just he's immediately struck down. If you read this passage out of Scripture, you get this impression that he immediately died right there in front of the crowd. It, it doesn't say that. It said he was struck down immediately. And that he was eaten by worms and then breathed his last. There was a process. And it was painful. And God exacted his justice. And so you have this oh, moment, Right? This is one of those moments where the Bible is R-rated. Okay? But then what's the next thought? Remember, folks, sometimes I, I, when I'm reading through Acts, I look at it and I say, oh, it's all un unfurling in real time. It's all, you know, this is all... No, we're a year after those events. What's happening is it's an anthology. How would you tell a story? How would you write your memoirs when you're 70? Right? So think through that context that Luke is writing this stuff decades after it's actually happened. And what's happening is the Holy Spirit's encouraging him and helping him and inspiring him what to write down. And so he talks about the eventual hand of God, the hand of justice, striking Herod down because he what? He wanted to compare himself to a God. There's a lesson to be learned there for all of us. But then what is the very next thing Luke decides to share with us? The very next thing is a message of hope. Number one, God was paying attention to the, the needs of His people, but He also saw the, the, the wholesale ego and idolatry that Herod exhibited, and he said enough is enough. And he exacted his hand of justice. But Luke says what? He says, but the Word of God increased and multiplied. The Word of God increased and multiplied. And why does he say that? Because you still don't have the New Testament yet. You see, God through His Holy Spirit and through individuals like Paul and the apostles was developing out this New Testament. And the Word of God was growing and it multiplied. The power of God won. And go back to the story, how would you have sat there in Caesarea as the early church when Herod is killing off the apostles? Actually in Jerusalem. How would you have looked at that? Would you have wondered, has God abandoned us? You go back and you can look at all the history in the Old Testament and see how because of the people's sinfulness, God let them be persecuted until they turned their hearts back to God. What would you have been thinking? But the reality is a year later, God shows up as a just God. As a just God. I pray that this helps you in your walk and in your path 
in understanding God. I think the takeaway today in the sermon is not too complicated. I think it has to do with the circumstances of our life and how sometimes we distort who God truly is because of opinion or because of circumstances. My encouragement to you is go back to the book of Job, look at those last four, five, six chapters, and see how God describes Himself. And in that same vein, in that same fashion, I encourage you, treat others that same way. Let's not form an opinion about somebody else based off someone else's opinion. There's no justice in that. There's no justice in that. Let's pray and then we're going to continue on today in worship. And uh, keep reading in the book of Acts. Remember, you've got homework. Okay? I, I want to hear how the homework went. Let's pray. Lord God, as we continue in worship today, I pray that we are encouraged. It is a somber subject. It is a challenging subject. And I pray, dear Lord, that as we um, examine our own hearts, our own lives, and the circumstances of our lives, that we, we don't distort who you say you are, but that we get the whole understanding that in this particular moment, maybe your mercy is happening, maybe your grace is happening, maybe your justice is happening, maybe your loving kindness, and we just can't see it, but you have demonstrated yourself to be a trustworthy God. So let us believe in that. Let us hold to that in the midst of circumstances. Thank you, Father, that you are just, that you are holy, that you are wise, and that you hear our cries. To you be the glory. Let us sing out in response of praise this morning to you. Amen.